this morning, uh, you know, I was thinking, it, it's so funny. I said this last week, you know, how God just sets things up, right? Three different speakers the last three weeks, but God has still orchestrated one message to flow into the other. It just amazes me how he does that, right? That's one of the ways that he's great. And so I was thinking, you know, way back in January, Mike had mentioned how he felt like God had given him a theme for our church. Do any of you guys remember that? It's been a long time ago, right? But he said he felt that the theme was, this could change your life forever. And when he first said that, I was like, oh, that's a big theme to live up to all year long, right? But then I started thinking, well, that's not really that great of a big like epiphany, really, when you think about it. Because it's common sense that if we take the Bible and we take what we're learning in church and we apply it to our lives, to our household, to our jobs, to everywhere that we're going, then it should change our life forever if we're applying what we're learning. So today, we're going to be focusing on a topic that I think is really relatable to everyone. It doesn't matter your race, your culture, your gender, your religious background, your educational background. Everyone, every day, is faced with decisions, decisions, decisions. Do you agree? Right? Lots of decisions to make every day. So two weeks ago, Mike preached about how we can't stay here, meaning we can't stay where we are spiritually and that there are empty seats all around us and that we need to have this urgency to compel people to come with us to fill the seats because by filling the seats, people are learning about Jesus and accepting him for salvation. And then last week, Nate talked about how we are God's witnesses and we are the evidence that God exists. So today, as we talk about decisions, I believe the way we look at and make decisions will strengthen our witness to help us fill the seats. Does that make sense? And that all goes together. So Pastor Mike usually takes the words from scripture and he divines them in their original Hebrew or Greek context. So today, what I'm going to do is take our simple everyday words that we use and just define them through the dictionary. That way we make sure that we're looking at these words through the same perspective. So we're going to start today with our word of focus, which is decision. So the word decision has a very simple definition. It's a choice you make after thinking about it. The problem with a lot of decisions that we make is that we make our decisions based on the circumstances we're in or how we're feeling at the moment or how someone else is feeling about the decisions you're making at the moment, or even our own selfish desires and what we want, as opposed to what God's word says, and lining our decisions up with his word, or what it is that he's telling us to do to make that decision. So if I made decisions based on the thoughts and feelings of others, I wouldn't have married Mike. Right. And I wouldn't have moved out of Maryland. I lived in Maryland until I was 30. Said I would never leave. I'll never take my kids away from their grandparents. I did anyway, right? Which eventually, another state and then here, led us here to where we were. I had to make the decision last year if I was going to leave my teaching job. I loved where I was. It was like the perfect place. The staff was amazing. I had a co-teacher in the room with me all day long. Two teachers in one classroom, right? That's the best scenario you can possibly have. In my selfishness, I really wanted to stay. I fought it so hard that two weeks before school, I even went in to that school 
to start setting up the classroom. I thought, I am not leaving. This is too good to let go. I cannot let this go. As soon as I walked in the building, you know, I walk in with my box of stuff. That's what teachers do. They're excited to set up their room. And I'm walking in. And as soon as I walked in the building, I was like, oh, man, I'm not going to be here. But what did I do? I stayed and I sat up my classroom because I'm like, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray as I'm setting things up and organizing my room and make it all look pretty. I printed out all this stuff. I put it up and I didn't go back. But my own selfish desire, if I would have chosen what I wanted, my decision, then I would have missed out on something amazing, something that's pushing me to grow in so many different ways. You know, I felt like I was supposed to leave there and go to Woodrow Wilson. There were no openings at Woodrow Wilson. I'm like, God, how is that going to happen? Right? But I get a call the night before school starts. Lo and behold, a teacher's not coming back. Can you be a long-term sub? Absolutely. Right before that one ends, oh, a teacher's having a baby. Can you be a long-term sub? Absolutely. So I was there at Woodrow Wilson pretty much every day the whole school year. And so just seeing how when you make the decisions that God wants you to make, how things just fall in place and line up. And now we have an amazing connection with a school that we can really help bring about change in the community through the school. So I tried looking up how many decisions the average person makes during the day, and the results ranged pretty greatly depending on what was considered a decision. But when I thought about it, I thought, well, we really make decisions all day long, even when we don't realize it, right? The alarm goes off. You decide, do I hit snooze or do I get up? It goes off again. Do I hit snooze? Do I get up? It goes off again, right? Snooze or get up. How much toothpaste am I going to put on my toothbrush? What am I going to wear? Am I going to go to the bathroom now or can I hold it for a couple minutes, you know, until I'm done something else? So all these things that we even do daily that we just do really are still decisions that we make every day. So one site suggested that we make about 35,000 decisions a day from the simple ones, like how much toothpaste on my toothbrush to the great ones. Do I stay at my job or do I quit? So thinking about all these decisions, there's no wonder that there's such a thing called decision fatigue. Have you guys ever heard of that? Because I'd never heard of it until I started doing some research on decisions. So decision fatigue refers to the deteriorating quality of decisions made by an individual after a long session of decision making. So when I thought about it, it makes sense because I know by the end of the day, when my kids come up to me and ask me a question, by then I'm like, yeah, I don't care, do whatever you want, right? I'm done with making decisions for the day. <clears throat> or like if it's, okay, what do you want to have for dinner? I really don't care, just pick. Like I don't want to make any more choices or any more decisions. So we don't need to be fatigued by our daily decisions if we're allowing ourselves to make a few important decisions to begin with. So when you're fill in the blanks, if you want to follow along and fill them out, we're going to go over our first important decision that we should be making. Number one, it is decide to seek. So looking up the word seek, the definition is to resort to, to go in search of, to look for, to try to discover, to ask for, to try to acquire or gain. And seek is a verb. It's an action word. So I want you guys just start calling out ways to me that you already know of that we do to seek God. What are the actions we take to seek God? 
Someone call it out. Prayer. What else? Study your Bible. What else? Serving others. What else? Worship. Yeah. Anything else? Say a miracle. Going on a walk or run, making that time to connect with God. Absolutely. Um, I wrote down all those things. I also had um, in your time of prayer, actually taking time to also listen during your time of prayer, not just talking to God, seeking wisdom from others, listening to sermons other than just being at church. So if we're going to seek for something, it requires an action. And an action, unfortunately, requires work, right? That bad W word, it requires work. So if you lost your debit card or your wallet or your cell phone, you're going to seek for it until you find it, right? You're going to retrace your steps. You're going to call the last place you remember using it or ask someone if they remember seeing it. And I know this really well because this happens in my house every week. Ask Mike the last place he left his debit card. Do you want me to tell you? Can I tell you? The gas, not the gas pump, but you know how when you fill up a tire with air and you have to put your card in to charge it? That's where he left his debit card like two weeks ago, all the time. So you're going to take action until you have found what you deemed is so important to find. So let's look at someone in the Bible and the actions taken to seek what they were looking for. Luke 19, 1 through 4, says Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. So Zacchaeus was in no position to see Jesus as he was traveling through town. He could have said, oh, I'll catch him the next time he comes through. Or he could have said, it's going to take too much effort to climb that tree. That's my kid's famous phrase now. It used to be, it's too far. Now it's, oh, it's too much effort, right? It takes too much effort to climb that tree. Or things that we might say along those lines today is, I'd rather sleep in. Or I'll go to that event next time. I'll go to prayer next month. Or I'll read my Bible tomorrow. But instead, Zacchaeus made the decision to seek him by climbing up in a tree. And let's take a look at what the outcome was. Luke 19, 5 through 6 says, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. So Zacchaeus actively sought Jesus and Jesus responded, right? Jesus didn't just look up at him in the tree like, what are you doing up there, right? He responded to the effort that Zacchaeus put in. And as we read on, we know that Zacchaeus received salvation and was forever changed, Right? Not only did he receive salvation, but after that, he was a witness. He gave back to the people way more than he stole from them. Can you imagine those conversations? Right? Zacchaeus is going to go up to someone and he's going to say, Hey, here you go. You know, As I was collecting taxes, I took 50 silver coins, but I'm going to try and make it right. And I'm, I'm going to give you back 150. You did? You are? And why are you giving it back? And why so much? So Zacchaeus, in his transformation after seeking God, became such a witness. Can you imagine people's response to him 
They knew what kind of man he was. They knew he was a thief. They knew he was stealing from them. That's how he became so wealthy. But instead, Zacchaeus went forth to become a witness. I just wonder, you know, how many saw him transformed and heard of him seeking Jesus and then were transformed themselves through his witness. His change of actions had to bring about many witnessing conversions, all because he decided to seek Jesus. So how many people can we really witness to if we choose to seek Jesus weekly, daily, hourly? You seeking God is not just for your benefit, but it's for the benefit of others. So many times we think, oh, coming to church is for me, so I can get filled, and I can get this, and I can make the connection with God. But God is bigger than that. God thinks larger than that. What you get for you is not just for you, but it's for the benefit of others too. Once Zacchaeus saw Jesus, Jesus responded. And once you're a seeker of God on a regular basis, you'll have him not only responding to you, but initiating conversation with you. You'll be able to hear that more clearly. Let me tell you something stupid. Okay, so I shop at Aldi, right? And you know when you go to Aldi, you need a quarter and you need your own bags, right? Because if not, it's just a hassle if you don't have your own stuff. So one week I was running to Aldi and it wasn't really a planned trip. And I knew I didn't have a quarter. And I'm driving there. I'm like, oh man, I don't have a quarter, right? The stupid quarter, digging in the car, looking for the quarter, all pennies, no quarters. And so I just hear someone say, you don't need a quarter, just go. No, I need a quarter. If I don't have a quarter, I'm not getting a cart, right? I'm not really realizing that God is telling me, you don't need a quarter. I got you covered. So I'm digging in my purse, digging in my purse. Fine. I'm like, oh, I found a quarter, right? All that wasted time digging. I pull up. I go to get a cart. Guess what? There's the cart sitting there away from the others. I didn't need a quarter. Dumb, right? Why didn't I just listen to something as simple as you don't need a quarter? So God knew I messed that one up. So a couple days later, he gives me another shot. Still with Aldi's, right? (laughs) On my way home, I'm like, oh, I got to stop at the store and get stuff for dinner. I have a quarter. I don't have a bag. I'm like, oh, I'll just run it home real quick. It's not really that far the way. I'll just run home, get the bags, and go. And something says, you don't need a bag. Just go. Yes, I do. I need bags. I'm going to Aldi. I need bags. So what do you think I do? Did I learn my lesson, or did I go home and get bags? I went home and got bags. And you know what? God is so funny because I pulled into the parking spot. I opened the door and guess what was right there on the ground? This bag right here. Not only was it this bag, but it was brand new still with the tag on it. I'm like, okay, I get it. I need to start listening a little bit better, right? So when you're seeking him, sometimes it takes practice, right? To realize that he's talking to you too as you're seeking him. Even Jesus went out to actively seek. He didn't climb a tree that we know of, but he went out on a boat in the water away from people. He went into the garden. He took action to seek God. So another decision we need to decide to make is your number two on your fill in the blank. Decide to influence. And I know for some of you, as soon as I say that, right away your mind goes, I can't influence someone because I don't have my act together yet. I can't influence someone because my marriage is a mess or I'm cussing or I'm smoking or I'm just not good enough yet. And that's exactly what the enemy wants you to think. He has used that lie since 
forever. So don't think because you don't have your act together or you're not good enough that you can't influence someone else because you can. God knew we weren't good enough. That's why he sent Jesus, right? And like Christy said this morning, that's what makes us worthy because we have Jesus. Okay, so let's make sure we're all on the same page when it comes to the word influence. This is also when you're filling the blank sheet if you want to fill it out. Influence is the capacity to have an effect on the character, development, or behavior of someone or something. So how many of you can think of someone you know that needs some good influence in their character, their development, or their behavior? You guys know someone that needs that? Branson, you point to yourself? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I met a lady just the other day that I thought needed my influence. Let me tell you how badly that went. So Leah and I are driving down the street. I'm taking her to gymnastics, and we come to the top of our road. We have a stop sign, and there's a stop sign on the other side. It's a a T street. The stop sign there is weird. I don't even know why it's there. So we stop, and then there's a car coming, and they're supposed to stop, but she doesn't. She just keeps barreling through. You know, and a lot of times, if you're not familiar with the neighborhood, you can miss the stop sign because you're not thinking there would be one there. So they're going the same way. I'm going behind them. She pulls into um, a house, a couple houses down from the stop sign. And so my thought is, oh, they probably don't live in the neighborhood. They don't even know it's there. Let me let her know it's there so it doesn't happen again, right? My intentions are good. Leah's here next to me. It doesn't go well. So the, I guess her teenage daughter gets out of the car first, And she's the only one getting out of the car. So I'm thinking, oh, her friend's probably dropping her off. It's a teenage driver. You know how they are. Sorry, Grace. And so she gets out of the car and I start talking to her. She doesn't even look at me. She just beelines it in the house. And then the mom steps out. And I was just like, excuse me. I just wanted to let you know there's a stop sign at the top of the street and you missed it. I just want to let you know so you don't miss it again. Do you think I'm blind? She says to me. Leah looks at me. Leah's looking forward. She's not even looking at the lady anymore. (laughs) And I was like, oh, you saw it and went through it anyway? Yes, I did. I didn't know how to respond after that. I was not expecting that. I was like, oh, wow. And she was like, yeah, wow. You didn't die, did you? Now I'm like, I really don't know what else to say. So I just left, right? (laughs) Poor Leah. And she did use some language that was not appropriate. So poor Leah, right? she doesn't know what to do. And I just said to her, Leah, did you see how mommy stayed calm, right? I didn't respond to her anger. We just went on our way trying to use it as a teaching lesson. But then I was thinking about it. I was like, well, I guess I can understand why she didn't respond to my influence because I have no relationship with this woman, right? Even though I'm trying to come off as nice as I possibly can with good intentions, this woman is like, I don't know you. Get away from my house and stop talking to me. The horrible thing is the next day, I just have to throw this in. The next day I go for a walk. She has three little kids outside in her front yard in a pool. And I'm thinking if a car doesn't stop and they zoom by your house that way, what could happen, right? Horrible, sad. Okay, so... In order for us to truly have an influence on people, we really do need to have relationship with them first. So it's our desire here at church, at Relevant Faith, to have an influence in this community. And so we're building relationships by being faithful and doing the laundromat every month, 
right? We're seeing the same families every other month from the two laundromats that we bounce back and forth in, uh, in between. We spent two years at Woodrow Wilson cultivating relationships with the staff and the principal and the families there. Um, we've even had several families from Woodrow Wilson contact us asking us about the church. Where are we? What time do we meet? Do we provide transportation? So from taking the time to build these relationships, we're starting to see some things happen. And we're truly hoping that with these families that we can build relationships and be welcomed in their home with their families to help them create better home environments in many different ways. So I want you to think about yourself. Who are those in your life circle that God has placed you to be an influence over? You know, Nate preached last week that God created you because there are only certain things that you can do, right? God has precise things for you to do it in the way that you would do it. God has certain people in your life that aren't in my life, right? He has certain people in Chase's life that are not in Scott's life for a certain reason because you guys can influence them in a way that I can't or a way that Patrice can't. So God has things set up that way for you to be an influencer. So obviously, we should have influence in our families because we have those relationships with them. We see them all the time. So I always, I always ask a lot of questions because I want you to ask questions of yourselves, right? Because that's how we grow and that's how we change. So how are you doing at building those relationships in your family? You have an influence over your children with how they view marriage and relationships um, you know, they're looking at what you're modeling for them. You have an influence on how your family is walking out their faith. Do they see you seeking God and making that relationship a priority? You know, we can't just say one day, oh, I hope my kid grows up to be a gymnast, but never put them in classes or, you know, show them other people doing it. Or I hope my child grows up to be a prayer warrior, but you're not sitting and praying with them and modeling for them what that looks like. I hope my kids really keep God as a priority when they're older. It can't be when they're older. It starts now when they're younger and you having that influence over them to what you want them to become when they are older. So I want to show you this slide. I saw this slide months ago and I saved it just hoping I'd be able to use it one day. A father said to his child, be careful where you walk. The son responded, you be careful. I walk in your footsteps. And that's really so true and so powerful. And, you know, some of you might say, well, I don't have little kids at home anymore. But, you know, it's, it's true with whoever your circle of influence is. And maybe you need to find some kid to mentor or a young adult. You know, young adults that are in their 20s, they think they're set and they think they know everything. But they still need help and they still need guidance, too. So they don't just automatically grow up to be these caring, giving adults. They're shaped and formed to be that way because of what you are helping them to experience. If you want them to be sold out for God, guess what they have to see in you? That you are sold out for God. So we also have coworkers that we have influence over because you see them probably just as much, maybe sometimes more than you do your own family, so you should have those relationships there. You know, how do your coworkers see you handling conflict? What's your response when your coworkers are talking about the boss? You know, being in the school, the teacher's lounge. I used to never go in the teacher's lounge because all it was was a bashing se session against the principal. I go in there now hoping that I can help turn that environment around. You know, I'm trying to be a positive influence in that way. Um, 
one thing that's come about with us being an influence at the school, uh, we're going to have our back-to-school bash. We're actually doing two this summer, and you'll hear about that very soon in the next coming weeks. Um, one of the teachers at the school has now talked with her church, and their church is going to raise funds to help us with the back-to-school bash, which is really cool. So that's a great way to be an influence, right? Just doing what you're supposed to do and let others see it. So let's take a look in Scripture at the power of influence. In the book of Ruth, we see a close relationship between Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Over time, Naomi's two sons and her husband pass away, and her one daughter-in-law goes back home to where she came from, but Ruth insists on staying with Naomi. Naomi's relationship with Ruth allows her to have a great influence. This is what Ruth says to Naomi, Ruth 1.16. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be your people, and your God, my God. Those last few words, I hope, are what we are all striving for, right? To be a witness to other people. You know, we want to hear our kids, our families, our coworkers, our crazy neighbors, our friends say, I want your God to be my God. That's the importance of influence. If we're making the decision to seek, then our influence will be powerful through the building of relationships. So I want to show you this video to show you how powerful influence can be. A senior quarterback with a 95-yard touchdown run to win the state championship game. Leading a team that just two years ago had a 1-10 in 10 record to their first state title in more than 60 years. Champion! Historic. <laughs> Impressive. But this is a story about much more than football. This is a story about a coach, a quarterback, and a little but loaded question that changed their lives. Summer 2015, Harding University High School, Charlotte, North Carolina. Number one go overall. Sam Griner, a first-year head coach, tasked with turning around the Rams' abysmal, underfunded program and breaking some bad news to sophomore Brahim Murphy. The athletic director comes to me and says, oh, yeah, by the way, um, Brahim Murphy and some other guys are not eligible. I was like, Brahim's not eligible? Like, he, I was like blown away because he's so smart. But he didn't have the grades to play. When he told me that, I didn't show any emotions, but like once I got home, I just cried for like two days straight. Home, a complicated word in Brahim's life back then. Uh, I had to be on my own at times, and sometimes I, um, like I'll stay at my friend's house. Me and my sister stay at my friend's house. We were going back and forth. We're homeless. He was basically, I wasn't stable in a stable home. When he was five years old, Brahim lost his mother to a brain aneurysm. And after that, it's just like everything went downhill. My dad loves me and everything, but we were just going through problems. Coach Greiner started to notice that when he dropped Rahim off at home, it was never the same place twice. Eventually, he just opened up to me, and he was like, uh, you know, I, I have to stay with my sister from place to place. And I didn't know what to do at times, so I, I go into my office, and I start thinking, I'm like, God, something's tugging at my heart. And now Sam Greiner has spent years talking faith, family, and football. So he called his wife, Connie. Okay. It was time to practice what he preached. So he stayed with us. We had dinner a couple of times with him, and, I mean, I fell in love. 
and their daughters, Charlie and Journey, just two and three years old at the time, absolutely smitten with a new big brother. So when it came down to that little life-changing question... He's like, is it okay if I just stay here with you guys for a little bit? I said, Brahim, you can stay here as long as you want. Will you do me a favor? Yeah. Will you it was an adjustment, but it worked. I just felt that um, when I had someone caring for me, I felt like I, it, it made me do better in school and it made me want to do better in life, you know? His grades shot up, straight A's. Brahim said in finding a family, he also found faith. Once I met God, it, that's, that's a, a main turn in my life also. And football, well, that fell into place. But this story, it's far from finished. Brahim will leave for college in the summer. He earned a scholarship to the United States Military Academy at West Point. I'll shed some tears, because Connie gonna make me, they're, they're gonna make me cry. Oh my gosh. <sighs> what you gonna tell Brahim on graduation day? I thought I love him. I couldn't be more proud of him. <laughs> I mean. He's doing a family tree changer. Um, yeah. I never had an opportunity to go to West Point. He's better than me. Um, Connie's trying to go to college right now to do her career. And uh, one day we'll probably be working for our own son. <laughs> In Charlotte, North Carolina, Diane Gallagher, CNN. I'll post the video later on Facebook. Y'all can watch it. But at least we got to hear it all, right? I love how the dad says at the end, this was a family tree changer. You know, not just a family tree changer for his family or for the young boy's family, but if you think at it spiritually, it changes the spiritual family tree. And that's our job and that's our mission when we're being an influence is to change that spiritual family tree. And, you know, that video really portrays Jesus's model, right? Jesus spent time with his disciples. He built relationships with them, which then they allowed their faith to be built through his influence and experience. And that's the same thing that happened with this young boy, right? Once this family was an influence on him, he opened his heart up to Jesus. And that's the most important thing that we should be able to take away from that video. So we're at a place in life where we really must be an influence in, in our community and over our community. I mean, we see all the time, all the school shootings that are happening, right? Kids and, and teenagers, they need mentors in their life. They need these positive influences in their life. You know, all the racism and there's just division over every topic. And we as Christians, we really need to step in and we need to build those relationships and we need to become that influence that's needed. Okay, your last decision on your fill-in-the-blanks, decision number three that we're going to focus on today is decide to be desperate. So when we hear the word desperate, we most likely think that this is a word that we really don't want to have active in our life, right? We don't want to look, feel desperate as in there's no way out or there's nothing that I can do to fix it. Um, it naturally has a negative connotation. But desperate also means having a great need or desire for something. Are we totally lost with video? There's no, nothing? Okay. So this is the desperation that we should have for God. We should have a great need or desire for God. John Bloom is the author and co-founder of Desiring God, and this is what he wrote. You're really going to have to listen. It's a little long. It was going to be on the screen, but stuff happens, right? So the lack of a sense of desperation for God is deadly. 
Being desperate for more of God should be the cry of every Bible-believing Christian. We should want our cup to overflow with God's presence and existence, and we should be ever seeking more of him. Spiritual death comes when we think we have enough of God, when we think our cup is appropriately filled. We should be ever seeking more of him, not just when times are hard and we've exhausted all of our own possibilities. And, you know, seeking him, being desperate for him is a lot different than being desperate for what he can do for you, right? There's a difference in that. You know, the same way sometimes we might feel desperate for a relationship or for a spouse, you know, wanting that connection. That's the desperation for God that we should be feeling, not just desperate because we need him to fix a situation or a circumstance, but to really be desperate for him. I want to show you a little illustration here. So the, this tall skinny vase here represents you, right? Represents you. The water represents God. And then all these little marbles down here represents life and things that happen. So this is what we usually do, right? Things start going bad. We're behind on our bills. The kids get sick, which in turn makes us fight with our spouse usually, right? And so then we say, God, I need you. God, I need you. God, I need you. And we get just enough of God to where he covers what's going on. Things happen again. Maybe your parents get sick and they live far away. You can't take care of them. You start fighting with people at work. Things pile up again. And again, we say, God, I'm desperate for you. But really what we're saying is I'm desperate for what I need you to do. So we pray, we pray, we get more of God. And this happens over and over in life. Am I the only one? Is this right? <laughs> right? When things happen, don't you tend to try to connect with God more, right? But what we need to do is we need to have that desperation to say, God, I just need you. I am desperate for a relationship with you to where it is overflowing. And so then what happens is you're seeking him, you're praying to him, you're desperate for him so that his presence then overflows from you and runs out onto every situation in your life that God already knows is coming up. So everything in your life down here is already covered. It's covered before it even becomes a problem in your life. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's what it means to be desperate for God, to be desperate for him. So he's already got it all covered for you. We need to decide that there's nothing we can do without God. Even going through our normal everyday routine, going to the stupid grocery store, right? There's nothing that we can do without God. Going about your day at work that's mundane, that you do for 40 or plus hours a week, that you know what to do, you know the routine. We need to have that mindset and that feeling that we can't do it without him. This uh, becomes different when we confess and understand that being desperate for God changes the way everything is done for us. Are we going to be able to play that song? Okay. There's, um, there's a song that I've been listening to for a while now. Um, it's by a singer called Ty Tribbett. And I remember when I was playing it in the classroom at Woodrow Wilson before school started, 
Debrell teaches at the school, and she, <laughs> she came into the classroom. She's like, oh, you know Ty Trivet? I was like, I know Ty Trivet. He's awesome. So this song talks about how really I can't do life without you, God. Like, I am dependent on you. So, you know, I, I wish I could say that I've lived like this for a long time now. But to be honest, it's probably been the last year that I realize my desperation for God is not where I thought it was and where I needed it to be. You know, if I'm going to be a wife, a mom, a pastor's wife, the kids' church leader, a teacher, and everything else that I need to be and do, I can't do it. For so long, I did. I did it on my own, and I did it well. I'll be honest. I did it well. But now the last year, you know, I'm really at a point where I'm, I don't want to do it on my own. I don't want to do it out of my own strength. I want God to do it through me so that it draws other people to him. That's the whole point of you being desperate for God. So people see that in you, and it draws others to him.